Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I began last year called Brothers and Teachers. If you like what you hear today, please do visit bowendwelly.substack.com, click the little heart to like this episode, and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Today I'm speaking with Scott Britton. Scott is a fellow writer who runs two substacks, Creator Experiments and Consciousness, the Doorway to Human Evolution, as well as a fellow entrepreneur who was one of the co-founders of Troops.ai, which was recently acquired by Salesforce. Scott has written extensively about his own spiritual journey, in particular about the impact that 10 plus years of meditation have had and on exploring consciousness and the boundless self while enjoying the human experience. A huge thank you to my latest paid subscribers, Shannon, Mike, and Robert, along with all of my other subscribers here, as well as my fellow members of the Substack community. Your support is hugely important to me. I appreciate you all so much. And just to say, as those of you who have felt to inquire know quite well, my door is open. So if there's anything that you'd like to talk about, feel free to reach out and know that I will reply to all messages that I receive. So just ask. If you do enjoy this episode, please do take a moment to click the little heart button to like this post here on Substack. Your click on that little heart is the answer to the question. If somebody asked you about it, would you recommend this piece to a friend? It's also just kind of fair play for the work that I do in producing this writing and podcast. All right, we're just about to get started. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes or just consider this one, which is, what is your own understanding of what meditation is, what it's for, and what kind of impact it can have on one's life. Well, Scott, welcome to Brothers and Teachers. It's great to have you with me here, especially as a fellow Substacker. You're one of several people that I have met through Substack and in broader terms through my life as a writer. So again, thanks for being here. It's great to be here, man. I've loved connecting with you and other people on Substack. And it's always fun when you go from following someone's work to actually making the real connection. So thrilled to be here. Yeah, totally, man. There's any number of threads that we could follow here, but we've got some very specific common interests around the nature of consciousness and just diving deeper into the human experience. I think the piece of yours that grabbed me the most and prompted me to reach out to you was this piece about meditation that you wrote, partly in response to a question that I had asked. You've got a way of articulating what can be kind of esoteric subjects to some people in a very concrete way. And there are a couple things there in that piece that really stuck out to me. One was the idea of meditation as a sport, which really grabbed me because 
the way I think of the connection between sport and spirituality or sports and altered states of consciousness or sports as an entry point in a path towards personal growth. So meditation as a sport, that's something that actually I had not heard articulated before and I think is a beautiful and powerful parallel to make because I think most people see meditation and sport in totally separate realms. Yeah, I think meditation is a really funny thing because unlike most things in our life, because it's often in our inner landscape, we don't necessarily have the same type of feedback loop that we get with a lot of other things. I was an athlete and I've always loved working out. And it's like, if you go to the gym and you run on the treadmill or lift weights, like you're going to feel something different in your body. And that tight feedback loop and understanding of like, am I doing this right? Am I progressing? We have a lot of tools at our disposal for many parts of our life. Um, but with meditation, I found that uh, a lot of times that feedback mechanism is a little bit different. And as a result, people get discouraged and treat the practice of meditation, frankly, not like a practice. <laughs> if you think about sports, it's like if someone picks up a golf club or kiteboard, there's not this expectation that they're going to start off and be amazing at it. There's like this idea that, okay, this is going to take some time. I might need to watch some videos. I might need to read about it. The more I do it, the more I practice, the better I get. There's also the notion of an instructor or teacher that I can mm. enlist to accelerate mm. my progress. And so there's kind of all these like fundamental components that are very obvious to anybody that wants to get good at a sport. Yeah. The thing about a sport is that you can feel yourself getting better, right? And you were getting to this in terms of this feedback loop, right? You can feel yourself improving your golf swing, you know, your running, your kite surfing skills, whatever it happens to be. And closing or kind of awakening the feedback loop with meditation mm -hmm. and tuning into the physical aspects of it, um, the sensational aspects of it, right? The parts that you can sense uh, with your physical body, with your senses and perception, that I think is really a key. I mean, a very powerful key. Definitely. I mean, when I first sat down to meditate about a decade ago, I thought it was total bullshit. Like I was sitting there and was like, I'm just wasting my time. I could be doing something 10 or 15 minutes a day. And the key inflection point for me was after two weeks of doing headspace, I stopped doing it. And yeah. I remember walking around downtown Manhattan in the financial district and having this weird feeling of, I can't really feel my breath. Like it feels different in here. Yeah. Uh, in the body. And that was this kind of like big curiosity, like maybe there's something here that sensory perception of calm and peace mm -hmm. coupled with like, how quickly am I to react? Like how quickly am I basically to be an asshole in my mm -hmm. life when yeah. someone would do something that would just like disturb me? There's this momentary gap of reactivity 
yeah. where I could just become completely unconscious and just start being antagonistic or have this brief pause of awareness before I do that. Those were the kind of uh, muscles that I had to begin to observe that frankly started to make the practice yes. perceived as something worthwhile, you know? Yeah, man. You just hit upon another piece that relates to impatience, <laughs> which oh, is yeah, another totally. piece that I want to get to. Um, but just to stick with the first part of it for a minute, you know, the physicality has certainly helped me just in the last several weeks, really, because I had begun a process yet again, right? Yeah, um, totally. They want to establish a meditation practice because I just know that it not only will be good for me, but I know it's something that I need to do. I know it's something that I need, not that I need to do from like the outside. I can feel that it's where I am right now in my life, in my process as a creative person. It's something that I need, even without knowing exactly why. So, okay. So I had kind of begun thinking about that, working on it again a little bit. But coming across your articulation of the connection between meditation and the physicality and also, well, the potential benefits, you talk about this in the piece as well, like that we underestimate or understate the, we don't really understand how much of an impact it can make. And when I think about all the awesome experiences that I've had doing various sports, I've thought of those as like putting awesome in the bank. And I draw upon those experiences, right? And not just like the the doing of the sport, but what it put into my body and what it put into my consciousness. And so being able to see that meditation could perhaps deliver that same sort of awesomeness that has a lasting impact. I've kind of known that, but again, I mean, you articulated it in a new way for me. So thank you for that. But let's talk about that. Yeah, too. that's awesome. Yeah, I think I think it's like you're definitely onto something here where a lot of people, they recognize in their lifetime, the value of having a fit body will serve other parts of their life. Like yes. if I'm in good physical condition, it means I'm going to be like a better entrepreneur, a better creative, a better parent, a better friend, like I'm going to be able to enjoy life more. And so there's all these like cascading perceived benefits. And when I think about meditation, what are we really getting to me? Like the supreme benefit is a still mind. And well, what does a still mind get you? When I think about the source of creativity or breakthrough ideas or insights, they don't happen when I'm scrolling Twitter. Like they don't happen when I'm reading a book or a YouTube video. What I find the biggest creative breakthroughs are when I'm like in the shower or like I'm walking or running or like I'm yeah. doing something where the mind is still. And so I feel like there's a big attribution issue with mental performance and decision-making and the source of where that derives from, which is in my opinion, a still mind. It's kind of like you got to water that garden so that the insights will emerge. And it just feels like there's a lack of acknowledgement of that, um, which is kind of why we are where we are with the perceived value of meditation. When I think of how I have thought of meditation 
and the benefits of meditation in the past. I certainly have thought of it as something that would benefit me in all aspects of life in some subtle way. But the question of how Mm. was a little bit missing. You know, one of the things that's very apparent to me is I can usually tell if I hear someone on a podcast or being interviewed, I can often tell from someone's voice if they've done a lot of meditation. Mm. Uh, Rick Rubin is an example. You could hear Rick's voice as a disembodied nobody without knowing anything about the guy or even his name. And you would probably know that he has done a lot of meditating. There's something that goes to presence and a calm, but the how of the further, deeper, broader, and also of getting more frequent and even kind of constant access to this state of mind, whether we want to call it the creative state of mind, um, the intuitive state, um, that benefit of getting access to that on a much, much more frequent basis, again, is the connection there was just not as clear for me. I think that's the case with most people. Like, I think from a society perspective, like we're effectively programmed to multitask and be busy, like more and more. I mean, I remember for a long time, it was like, I couldn't do an activity without listening to a podcast or filling my mind with yeah. Uh some type of thing to improve myself and it's just kind of this paradoxical thing where we're mm-hmm. taught to fill the mind versus create space in the mind. Do you use the word performance? It's not really a word that I use in terms of how I run myself. The word itself is like, it contains the sense of doing, like we have to be doing something, be thinking actively. So again, this idea of meditation as something that you do actively, and that even can be seen as kind of a sport, um, or certainly as a practice that has a specific end and very perceptible effects, both puts it in the realm of the doable and also kind of take some of the power away from the idea that you should be doing something else. And we have to recall most meditation, it's like an ancient tradition. It wasn't popular in the West. And truthfully, it's not as lucrative of a proposition as Mm -hmm. many things, which we are told to spend our time and energy on. And so, you know, it's kind of this free thing that is just always there that you can do anytime. And so it really hasn't been marketed super well. Like the benefits have not been marketed deeply and concretely, and even as measurably as many other things in our society. For example, I can have a biofeedback mechanism on my wrist that tells me the impact of exercise on my heart rate, but not many people are using that same exact mechanism to track their heart rate and all of these things when they started and stopped the meditation or when they started to meditate and over time. And Mm -hmm. I'll give you a perfect example. I go to the doctor, they think something's wrong with me because my resting heart rate is in the high thirties and typical Americans are like in the fifties and they're like, what the heck is wrong with you? You're barely breathing. That's a sign of a very well-conditioned cardiovascular system, but also a very robustly calm 
mm-hmm. flexible state. Well, your nervous system is conditioned as well. They're not just the cardiovascular. Yeah. Yeah. But no one's out there being like, yeah, I'm trying to like improve my ex through meditation uh-huh. wearing this device. Like we just haven't yeah. crossed the chasm of a society as like really assigning immense amount of value and measuring and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I hear you. It occurs to me that part of the reason that we think of meditation as a thing so much as a distinct thing in the modern world is because we are so estranged from the the non-analytical, from the spiritual, from the physical, from the perceptual, from all these other parts of ourselves. And one of the things that I know to be true and I feel for myself is that the states of mind that we're in when we're dreaming, when we're meditating, when we are out walking in nature, when we are having sex, when we are engaged in sport, when we are in creative flow, all of these states of mind are perfectly normal. And just as normal, they're all just as much normal states of consciousness as what we tend to think of as the normal state of consciousness, which is essentially anything but all those other parts of ourselves, right? We kind of tend to think that we have to do a lot of meditation to get to this state of mind that we can get to that way, partly because we're so far from it. It's my belief the natural state of consciousness and humanhood is one of bliss and joy and ease. And we just kind of, unfortunately set up this system and environment that made those things really hard and conditioned us a certain way. And now we are effectively unlearning all of the learned behaviors. Yeah. These specific practices, whether going out in nature to walk or run or sitting and meditating, they are very practical ways of getting to a more blissful, open, aware, and creative state. One of the things that you brought up recently too is the connection with intuition. I'd love to hear from you. What's your question there? What's your curiosity? It's the connection. I'm like so infatuated with the exploration of intuition because basically when you talk to most leaders in society, many will cite that the best decisions they ever made were from their gut, like from their intuition. And what I think is so interesting about that is that we don't really intentionally practice a skill set around cultivation of that. And so there's clear attribution to this thing that is really good for decision-making. And then there's low investment or unclear directive onto how to do more of it. And I'm actually thinking about starting a business around this because I actually do think that one can learn how to create more direct and consistent intuitive guidance. And what I have found to be the way to do that in my own experience has been to learn how to still the mind and present a question and patiently wait to see what emerges. One thing that's different with meditation, at least in the early phases, is it actually very much is an active practice. 
So you're focusing on the feeling and sensation of, for example, your breath, like feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath coming out. So there's like somewhat of a, an active doing. There comes a point in time where you can develop a level of stillness and you can effectively present something and then mm-hmm. wait for an answer to emerge. That to me is one of the concrete ways that you can invoke more intuitive guidance in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some other practices and what I think is really going on there, like this might be not the way that it's branded, but like when I'm getting that type of clear guidance in a quiet mind, like I'm connecting to source, like I'm connecting to the highest divinity that, you know, my consciousness is an expression of, and that, that divinity is all knowing it's all aware. Like today we make decisions from effectively, uh, that which we have been exposed to and our ability to pattern match against that. But let's say for example, Mm-hmm. I wanted to know about like anything that I want to know about, like my exposure to totality is very small. My sampling is very skewed and very small. And when I feel like I can um, tap into that highest source of information, which is pure consciousness, uh, I'm getting wisdom and insight from the entirety of totality. And that to me is just, much more compelling. Understanding how to do this and learning to trust it are two different mm-hmm. things. But for me, I don't really make many decisions without trying to invoke some intuition at this point. Yeah. Well, there's a reason that my Substack has been called Decide Nothing from <laughs> the time that I launched it. It's a direct reference to intuition. I've written a fair bit about this and about methods of cultivating intuition. And the very first one that came to me was simply that when I find myself trying to make a decision, trying to decide, mm-hmm. the thing to do is to recognize that trying and to stop. And instead of looking for an answer, trying to grind away to find a decision that isn't emerging in the moment to instead to stop and allow space, right, for something to emerge. And There are several other mechanisms that I've developed for myself. A lot of them come back to this kind of pattern matching, right? Which is another way that a lot of people have described intuition as a pattern recognition. And that is also just a way of describing human consciousness. I mean, we are pattern recognition beings and our ability to recognize patterns, whether it's in our own thinking in the world, in the behavior of other people, in anything, that's not an analytical process. It is a recognition, right? It's a seeing. Um, And often it is unconscious or subconscious. Uh, And it also often involves a physical sensation, Mm -hmm. right? As we move through the world and feel the shapes of the world, as we interact with whether we're walking along the surface of the earth or we're feeling the shape of the wind or the kind of shape of the temperature of the air, these are all patterns, right? Just as the patterns of our voices are patterns, the patterns of interaction with another person 
all of these things are patterns, right? That we recognize, but that we can also get better at recognizing. And so to me, that's what cultivating intuition is all about, kind of making a practice of pattern recognition. Yeah, that's cool. I love that. It's almost like developing like an acute sensitivity to those things. And yeah, I do think the body is another great access point or gateway or natural intelligence where, you know, you feel tightness or something feels off. That's like a great cue to pay attention, right? That's a great Mm. cue to stop and listen. Yeah, I think it's like, there's all these different inputs outside of just, you know, writing a plus minus list or like pure reason that uh, I think just don't get enough credence to like the power that they could unlock for someone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. The plus minus list, whatever, for example, to me, that's a foreign concept at this point. Like I was never that into that sort of um, like acute productivity uh, type of stuff. I do nothing like that. And um, you know, the practice of cultivating intuition, which is something I've done a lot more work on myself than let's say meditation, um, is the most direct way that I've found to cultivate creativity. Um, intuition is the wellspring of creativity. Intuition is another way of saying it is like the emergent moment right? The moment when something bubbles up from the subconscious and kind of rises to the surface. Well, that is the creative moment, right? When something emerges into consciousness. Ah, oh, look at that, right? So if we can cultivate the ability to recognize patterns and to be in a receptive state, And also to recognize these emergent moments. I mean, I think that's another piece of it is to pay attention to the subtle messages and to give them their due. And as you said, you can kind of stop and ask a question, whether it's an image from a dream or some phrase that emerges or just something that feels a little off or something that kind of pulls you one way. um, It's like, well... Okay, stop and ask what's going on here. You know, what does this have to tell me? A couple of things you said resonate. One is the recognition of the emergent moments. And what's cool about that is, is like you can start to be intentional about creating more of them. Yes. You do that, like setting up the conditions to just have lots of creativity. One concrete example of that is throughout the day, I'll just get these little pings that are like, go for a walk. And if I have mm-hmm. the ability to do that, I'll just walk down the block for 10 minutes with my phone off and see yeah. what comes up. And a lot of times there's some really great ideas that emerge. Um, and the other thing that I think is um, really interesting is that there's this notion of that which consciousness poses a question to or is focused on solutions tend to emerge that's what i've observed at least it's like where you kind of direct the emphasis of consciousness like you will start to experience emergences around that emphasis mm-hmm. and um one thing that i do that's been very helpful for that is like i have a notebook on my bedside before I go to bed, I just ask a question that I want an answer to. Mm. It doesn't always come up like that evening as I'm 
very still and trying to go to sleep or in a dream or even the next morning. But as I've started to do this, like I have noticed more, Yeah, it's almost like I'm putting the seed in the garden. <laughs> That's the to, word that was in my mind. Yes. The to seed. like for it to blossom. Once you realize this, it's like, okay, well, I guess I just need to start putting in seeds, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And yeah. being intentional. Yeah, that's uh, no surprise that that was the word that was in my mind there as well, the seed. And this kind of inner work, which is also the title of a book by Robert Johnson, who was kind of a first-generation Jungian scholar, a student of Carl Jung's, is really all about cultivating creativity, intuition, and exploring the landscape of the subconscious in an active way by planting seeds, by following emergent threads. That's cool. There. Has there been any great books or people that have inspired your intuitive practices? I mean, for me, certainly Jungian psychology has been very fruitful to study. You can go to Jung directly, of course, and read his writings, but there's a great book uh, called Practical Jung by a Jungian scholar named Harry Wilmer. It's a blue book. It's done in an illustrated style and written in sort of a prose poetry. It's written in a very unique and beautifully accessible style. I know you came across this concept of interoception recently. I don't know if that was from um, Annie Murphy Paul's book, but that's where I came across that word. Um, her book is called The Extended Mind, um, and that's like a very contemporary scientific exploration. Also, another Jungian concept, I mean, the concept of archetypes, right, which are the patterns. They're, they are patterns that occur in our psychology, in human behavior, in the world, right? And so exploring this, again, this, it's another way of exploring patterns, right? I think the other biggest book that i would refer to is the book of nature mm. um and tell me more that sounds <laughs> like a sexy title <laughs> <laughs> because i mean our minds evolved outdoors of course right and our ability to recognize patterns and to sense and to move in the world of course evolved in the world, not in the human constructed world, but in the natural world. And so for me, spending time in nature, and in particular, being physically active in nature, whether it's just walking, but also in particular doing more, let's say, the, I mean, activities that require training and attention, mm -hmm. and it kind of heighten the senses, various sports, have contributed hugely to my ability to my connection with my intuition. I would cite like two examples. And one is really that my sensed understanding of how intuition existed in me, or that just like I, I had a, a bit of an awakening around intuition um, when I was out trail running one day mm. many years ago. And I think this is the where it comes in for many people, really, whether they know it or not, is through movement in the body. It is and it isn't an esoteric kind of spiritual thing. It is also a very physical thing. To me, it's directly connected to movement. 
to well, move. Well, let, let me challenge that. So is that because movement, it's inherent to movement or that movement essentially quiets the mind? What comes to mind is that it's because we are animals that move in the world. And part of how we be ourselves is by moving. If we're not moving, if we're just sitting all day and transporting our bodies around in machines, and we're missing out on a huge part of consciousness. We're just not doing it. Mm. We're not exercising it. It's just obvious. So we're just not using a huge part of what we are. We need to move to think completely. Yeah, I agree with you in that the benefits of movement there's this thing that happens in with exercise or nature, like surfing is a great example where mm -hmm. there's almost like a singular point of focus. You're sitting on the board and you're waiting for the wave yeah. um, or running. It's like, you're just mechanically going through whatever you're doing. And that singular point of focus to me, it's just like another access point of the same thing as when you sit on a cushion and you focus on the feeling of your nostrils when you breathe in and breathe out and start to learn mm -hmm. to meditate. It all does the same thing mechanically, which is like it creates stillness and um, and an, an environment for these emergent insights. And um, I don't know if there's like, for example, like endorphins enhance that when you're running, like in a way that like maybe doesn't when you're sitting mm. on a cushion. I'm not really sure the mechanism, but there does seem to be some type of like correlation between activities that are really kind of require you with, to have more singular focus and emergent insights. Sure. Yes. I agree with that. Although I would say the point I'm trying to make is a little bit different in that, because we hear a lot about this, about running or whatever, quiets the mind, meditation quiets the mind, um, singular focus, the kind of sharpness brought about by exertion or risk, all true. That movement, again, is like part of how we are in the world. Like the movement of the body is part of how we interact with the shapes and patterns of the world. And so it's part of how we connect with, mm. you called it source, with the patterns that we are and that surround us, which is a way of practicing intuition. Um, and there's another piece to it too, which is kind of the second example that I was going to get to, which is that in particular being, I mean, it doesn't have to be outdoors and doesn't have to be in nature, but the most direct way of practicing wayfinding is to be outside in nature and to kind of give yourself the task or the challenge or the whatever of finding your way right from one place to another using the natural landscape as your guide you know not just blindly following a trail but kind of making your own way across the landscape let's say um that is to me a direct parallel for the intuitive process hmm that's a direct parallel for what intuitive decision-making looks like. It's not decision-making in an analytical sense. It's finding my way through a landscape and arriving at a place that 
feels right. Yeah, that's cool. I like that metaphor. Yeah. And I think what's also fun and awesome about that is like, I love part of the like zest of life and excitement of being a human is like that, like feeling of the unknown where you might not necessarily know the exact route, how to get there, but it's really just about that next step, that next immediate foot in front of the other. Yes. And um, that's where there's like a sense of aliveness that one can feel. And for me, like that wayfinding part of that's like why I think creativity is so fun. And like being an artist is fun is because you don't know like how this thing is going to turn out, but you just know, you just kind of keep going with whatever's emerging or whatever that next step is. And then at the end, you end up with this thing and you're like, whoa, I got to the end of the path or like, I found my way out of the forest and I didn't even know I didn't even know where that entry exit point is. Exactly. And, that, and that's really awesome and really fun. It is. It's super fun. Now, the way that that parallel is so apparent is that the feeling, right? The physical and emotional feeling of having an intuitive insight, right? Of an aha or coming across kind of the right answer is to me that same feeling of having found my way, right? Using my body and my skills, my perception, my senses, right? And finding my way like, yeah, totally. I got there, right? And I didn't know exactly how I was going to get there, but I got there. And that just feels incredible. It feels incredible. And to me, that's the same feeling of again of an intuitive insight or of a creative moment so that again is a this direct parallel to me that connects the intuitive creative and like the physical and the natural world and movement yeah that's awesome i love that so yeah, the book of nature, big Add, book. <laughs> added to the infinite list of things I would like to read. Yeah. Well, that one's easy. Just get outside if you can. What's on your mind in terms of what are you working on next? There's really kind of two big things. I'm writing a book. It's really the book that I wish I had about four years ago. My current belief is that the inner work and inner landscape is like the absolute best, most imperative thing that one could do for whatever it is they seek to create in the material world. Mm -hmm. And then germane to this conversation, I have had this idea for helping people cultivate more intuition or more direct connection to mm -hmm. higher intelligence, I'll call it. I'm exploring that. And I'm probably going to launch something like experiment some of these things and like having a group of people kind of trying to learn them and experiment with them. Those are the kind of my two big ambitions Awesome, and, um, mm. and things I'm working on. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, this has been a lot of fun. I mean, I think my perspective on how to think about intuition has definitely expanded. Mm. And to the extent that we can better understand that and cultivate more of it, what an awesome thing. Yeah, well, it's been a fascinating conversation. And I want to thank you for your work and 
your writing and the exploration that you're doing. Yeah, man. Well, thanks. It's been a real pleasure and I appreciate that. So thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful. Mm, yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure, Scott. And you are at scottbritton.substack.com. That's it. Well, thanks again for being here, Scott. And great to meet you, spend a little time with you, get to know a fellow writer. For uh, sure, dude. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this conversation, please do take a moment to visit the episode page at bowendwelly.substack.com and click the little heart icon to show everyone else that you liked it. It's a very small thing to ask and it really helps other people find my content here on Substack. I appreciate you making that small gesture of appreciation. You'll also find the questions there that I posted at the bottom of the show notes, which you can read and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at bowendwelly.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives. Just a final reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And of course, you can always reach me by email. And of course, you can always reach me by email or find me on social media. All the info is there on the Substack page as well. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you tune in again soon.